Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt, and we're here with Yuri Poberai in his home in White Salmon, uh, Washington. It's August 8, 2022. Yuri, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank uh, you for having me. <laughs> first question to get you started is why wine? Ooh, why wine? Um, wine was kind of, I was, I guess I was fortunate to travel all over the Europe when I was young, and I was just got to see a bunch of cultures and different countries and places like that. So I was exposed to wine pretty early on, and it interested me. I don't know why, but I just had a, I don't know, just place and time and just these different, I don't know, all these different wines around the world. So I kind of, I don't know, I just found it interesting, fascinating. It's a simple, such a simple product that can be expressed in so many different ways. So I kind of went down that direction. Um, it obviously relates to, it's very closely related to bread and so I felt like it was a good, good way to go for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your life. Uh, tell me about uh, upbringing a bit. So where were you born and raised and what was your kind of youth like? Yeah, I was born and raised in Solcon, Slovenia, um, just kind of on the border of Italy, the Gorizia, kind of Gorizka Berda region. Um, I moved from there when I was six years old to Washington, D.C. and then grew up in Washington, D.C. Um, finished high school there and then kind of I was traveling for kayaking for a long time and kind of going to school um, part-time and this usually in the winter and then I would take the springs off and travel um, either in Europe or Australia and places like that and then I finally decided to finish college and went to Portland State University I uh, got a degree from there and then kind of made my way out to the gorge. Originally had planned just to live here for one summer doing wind sports and mountain biking. And then I actually packed up my car, drove everything back to DC, stayed about a week and couldn't handle it. So flew back out here and then never left. Now it's been, we've been in the gorge for I think 12 years. What prompted the, the Portland State? Um, I had friends that were living in Portland at the time. I was in Durango, Colorado, and then just wanted to go further west for kayaking. Um, so I had some friends in Portland. I came to visit them. I liked them. Um, the school was reasonably priced, and it was close to the gorge. <laughs> so, yeah. So when you came back to the gorge, what was sort of your plan at that point? Um, I was working in the restaurant industry. So I was working in Celilo, uh in Hood River cooking. And that's where I met Nina, and she was also working there, but always had kind of this dream of opening a cake shop. Um, So that's where we kind of started talking about the bakery and all that. But mostly I was just learning to cook. I was cooking in some Portland restaurants while I was in school, and I enjoyed it. It was a good nighttime job, and then school during the day. And so I moved out here, cooked, and just kind of would see where it would go. So tell me about the next step in getting the the kind of the bakery going off the ground. Yeah, so we, you know, I was at Celilo a couple years, three or four years, and then Nina was really pushing. She wanted a cake shop, and I didn't know much about baking or 
pastry or anything like that. So I left Celilo, took some time off, and went and traveled and worked at some bread bakeries, some wood-fired bread bakeries um, up in Victoria, and then uh, Pine Street in Hood River was nice enough to let me do uh, you know two months over there to kind of see. And at the time, White Salmon was still a really quiet town. There wasn't much there. You know, there's a brewery, one other restaurant, and a little market and. So we felt like there was a need for a bakery on this side of the river. Hood River at that time had two, and um, they're both great. But we felt like you know it'd be nice to have something on the north side of the river. And luckily, the space we're in now just happened. We were walking by, and it happened to be the new owners bought it, and they were looking for people to lease it out. Mm -hmm. So we were very interested and kind of got talking with them, and then we were able to sign a five-year lease on the building. And then. From then, it was pretty quick. We opened, I think, after the lease got signed, we opened within four or five months on a shoestring budget. We weren't really sure how the town was going to react to a bakery and what we were doing or what we wanted to do. So we kind of, we didn't, we weren't willing to make a big investment and didn't have the money to make a big investment. So we just kind of opened it on this shoestring budget. And from there, it's just grown, grown, and grown. Yeah. You mentioned the kind of the, the you saw the need for something on this side of the of the, of the river. Uh, what was the reaction? How did it how did it open? Um, it opened really well. It was you know you definitely had those locals who were like good luck you know we'll see how long it lasts. But I think the town was changing started changing really rapidly and more and more money was coming into the town and people were moving out from big cities who had expectations to have good food and good baked items. Um, so it did really well. It it's been a really kind of gradual growth and it's still growing and um, it's been, you know, we've been so lucky that we've never really had a bad day and been able to kind of keep it moving. How has white salmon grown in the time you've been here? Oof. White salmon has changed quite a bit since we've been here. Just in the last, you know, I would say five, six years, white salmon has dramatically changed. It's where it used to be kind of a quiet little town. You go out at seven o'clock and there was maybe five or six cars on the main road. Now it's hard to find a parking spot. Um, but it's, you know, change is not always bad and it's been nice to get different folks into town and hopefully that brings more restaurants and more businesses and um, it obviously helps our business and it's, it's change, it's good, <laughs> so yeah. So you mentioned wine being something that had intrigued you. Uh, at what point does wine kind of come back into the picture for you? Um, I had always been interested in, well, originally when I moved to Portland, I was trying to get a brewing job at a brewery. I think I dropped off 30 resumes in Portland at breweries and didn't get a single callback. So <laughs> at that point, I didn't really know what to do. I kept bugging one brewery that I lived near, but they never hired me. So I got a restaurant job. And then I was really kind of exposed to wine when I moved out here to get to work at Celilo. She has a great you know, Oregon and Washington wine program there. And so I kind of started being interested in it, started to, got to get to taste more. And then I was lucky enough to meet Nate Reddy and Brian McClintic, and they kind of opened the doors for me to really get to try some fascinating wines and kind of really dive deep into European producers and um, things like that. So for me, I always wanted, you know, when we were looking for this property, I was looking, we always wanted land. We kind of were trying to figure out what we were gonna do next while I was cooking. And I knew the bakery was a great next step, but it wasn't kind of my final step. Um, 
So we luckily stumbled upon this 10 acre property where we can plant vines and have a cellar and do everything. So that's how it kind of fell, not fell, but that's how it kind of made it happen into what it is right now and hopefully keep it growing and going that way. And then I was lucky enough in 2018, I made some wine up at Hayu. He let me do a little bit there. And then 2019, I got to go work harvest over in Europe. Um, so that's when it really kind of, you know, sunk in that that's what I want to do and I want to learn about and um, I guess proceed with mm -hmm. for my life. So before we talk about the production experience, I'm curious, you mentioned kind of John, Nate and Brian and they were kind of, they kind of introduced you to wine. Tell me about your kind of personal wine education in terms of sort of discovering wines, discovering regions. What, what, how did it go for you? Yeah, I mean, since being, being born on the border of Italy and Slovenia, it's this kind of, you know, very, it's a very renowned wine region, but it's pretty specialized, you know, where kind of orange wines originated and, um, well, not originated, but where they got popular, I guess. And um, so for me, it was trying to bring it back to there. There's not too many people in the U.S. kind of focusing on Italian wines, at least on the West Coast. And there's a couple restaurants. Um, so I wanted to know if I was going to try to make wine from that region or at least, you know, use grapes that are from that region. I wanted to be able to be familiar with it and be able to express, express what... I see over there and somewhat over here. Um, so that's what kind of motivated me to lean towards that um, Italian, Slovenian wine. So tell me about production. Tell me about your kind of initial production experience. Oh, my initial production experience. Um, yeah, I got some dolce. My first year, I got a little bit of dolcetto and from a nice vineyard in Hood River. And I was able to, you know, with Nate's guidance, he kind of helped me every step of the way and uh, made a couple, I don't know, 60 cases or so of it. Um, and then I just kind of studied. I read books. I did... Um, was that that master uh, court of sommeliers? I started down that road, thinking maybe that's how I wanted to go, but then realized it wasn't for me. And then looked into the WSET, but never really went down that road. With the bakery being so busy, I never had too much time to study and things like that. So then, 2019, I was finally able to get away and do a month over in Europe, um, and that's where I really learned a lot. Got to you know 12-hour days, seven days a week. You learn as you know, take notes and learn as much as you can. Um, and that's what kind of influenced me in the wines that I want to make. So what was that experience like for you? What, was, what, what, what did you learn? Oh, it was great. Um, I got to work at Grovner and, you know, everything from we would get up at six in the morning, go pick for six hours, seven hours, um, have lunch, and then go back to picking, hopefully finish picking for that day, go press all on the same day. So everything was done the same day. and. Um, or go macerate the wine, whatever we did. Um, and then, you know, days we weren't picking, we were bottling. Um, so it was just a whole array of things. And I was kind of introduced into that, I guess, natural wine where we didn't do too much with lab testing or any of that stuff. It was all just kind of by taste. We would taste grapes when they came in, when they were fermenting and at every step of the way. And then that's when we'd kind of decide what was ready to bottle and um, what wasn't. So it was definitely like, it was different, you know, I've gotten, at least meet other people here that are very focused on 
one way of making wine and then I went to the extreme of kind of full hands off making wine, which I think was good for me. I'm not trained in, you know, I don't have a degree in viticulture or any of that. So it's just kind of, I feel lucky that I can approach things with an open mind and not have any expectations or any things that are set in stone that I need to follow. And so just kind of experiment and see what happens up to a certain level. What did you enjoy most about that kind of first month in Europe experience? Um, I harvest was a lot of work, but I just, it was just bringing this single cultivar in and just, you know, getting to taste all the different wines and just getting to taste from each vintage, how different it is, how different it is in barrel from year to year. You know, I was lucky to taste back from, you know, wines from 1983 in bottle to stuff that's still in barrel from 2000, 2008, 2009 that are still in big casks. And then even from 2008 to the present, you know, things get bottled and then they still age in bottle for another four years for the whites and eight years for the reds. So it's kind of just learning how wine evolves and how the tastes change over, over these long times. Um, kind of really, I really appreciated, I learned that wine needs to be held back, needs to be aged properly. And that really kind of solidified for me, you know, how I wanted to do things, how I was going to hold on to wine and kind of let it mellow out. I don't have any current releases or anything like that. And the stuff I have won't be released for another year or so. And it just kind of, that's what I really gained a respect for is being able to, you know, age stuff properly and hold on to it as long as you can. And, um, yeah. So when you came back from that experience, what were you kind of envisioning? What was your next step? What were you, what were you going to do when you got back? Um, or what did you do when you got yeah. there? Yeah, <laughs> we, the first step was kind of clearing the property. We had, I knew I wanted vines at least planted. Um, we had, you know, a couple of clear acres on the south, south facing Mount Hood. And I knew I wanted to get those planted. So I, that was the first thing we did was try to get vines in the ground. Unfortunately, we didn't have much water the first year. So a lot of stuff struggled. Then the second year we replanted and we got that heat wave and that killed most of my stuff. So it's just been a kind of a little battle of trying to get the vineyard planted um, while also making very small quantities of wine to kind of eventually release. Um, and then I was lucky enough, we were able to get this cellar built, you know, tiny little thing, but it's underground and it holds temperature fairly well. And so that was kind of the big next step was just let's find a place where we can age it and have somewhere that's temperature controlled without really you know, having to do too much electrical work and all that. So we got this built and this got finished last August. And now we're kind of starting to focus on production side stuff, trying to get, you know, if we can do 10 to 15 tons of grapes this year would be, would be great. What did you plant and why, why did you choose it? Uh, we planted Nebbiolo, Ribola Gialla, Frulano, and then there's some mixed stuff in there. I know I have some Toraldigo, some Pignolo, um, some Malvasia kind of randomly in there. Um, I planted it just to see how it would do. The quantity, I mean, it's, you know, it's such a small vineyard that it's really not huge quantities, but I was interested in bringing those grapes. I get to taste, you know, uh, like Matthiessen's Rubola out of the Vare vineyard and just, 
it's a fun, different expression of what that grape can do. So I'm interested to see how it'll do up here. So that's what we focus primarily on. We have a little bit of Nebbiolo because my partner, she loves Nebbiolo. So um, we'll have about an acre block of that. And uh, yeah, those are kind of the, that's what we plant in. Yeah, just to kind of bring, you know, a little bit of Europe back over here. There's a lot of Pinot and a lot of Chard already. And we don't, I don't know, I don't need more of that. So we'll have to try different stuff. So in the meantime, as you're, as you're planting the vineyard and developing your own source, you mentioned finding grapes elsewhere. Where, where have you had, where have you found stuff that excites you? Yeah, this year um, I was lucky enough to work with Stephen at Enelema. He gave me a couple tons of Godeo last year and the year before. Um, and then this year we're doing some Sangiovese from Three Mile Vineyard, the Dalles. Um, and then we get Pinot from... Eastside Vineyard in Hood River. Um, and then we're looking into a new vineyard up in Yakima, which is a biodynamically farmed vineyard um, for possibly Sangiovese um, and hoping for some Nebbiolo from him. Um, but I'm kind of looking for smaller, interesting vineyards that are you know, either farming organically. If dry farming, that would be even better um, of Italian varietals. Primarily, I guess I'm making Pinot and Godeo right now, but <laughs> um, but hoping to go kind of down the path of doing some Nebbiolo to be able to age it for a couple years and then uh, play around with Rubola and Fulano. So a lot of those varietals are, are, are fairly fairly uncommon, unknown here. Tell me about your sort of uh, where how will people find out about them? How will you kind of teach people about what these what these grapes are? Yeah, I think you know they're unknown, but they're also so similar to other varietals that are already pretty mainstream. You know, you can taste a Ribola that's on new oak that's very similar to Chardonnay or Frulano that's, you know, that can be a little bit of wood on there as well and it'll have this kind of tanginess, like, uh, I don't know, like Riesling or just a little bit bigger of a grape. Um, so we're kind of, I guess, not trying to hit this like niche orange wine market or anything like that, but just, you know, trying to with the bakery and with what's going on with the wine list there, we have this potential to kind of steer people in a direction to try something new. And I think that's important. So we don't have a big production and we never will. So we're not looking to sell tons of wine. Um, so it's just kind of being able to get the right people to kind of, you know, who are willing to try something new and, and different, I guess. Um, to explore and once you get them to try it once, you know, they might come back and then it's a lot easier But yeah, we'll see we'll see when you know I feel like the stuff that I've gotten a taste made in the US has all been really interesting and fun and I um, Think people are looking for that these days So tell me about the production here so far uh, What kind of what, what kind of method style are you going for so far and what do you have plans for in the future? Yeah, so Last year we did about 300, 400 cases, I think. Um, we do all natural fermentations, uh, all in wood usually. Um, we have a couple, you know, 10 hectoliter uh, vats, wooden vats that we use. If not, we'll just take the heads off of the pungens or regular barrels and try to ferment everything in wood. Um, we do whole cluster for everything. Um, and then for whites, we tried doing like a direct press. We just have a wooden basket press that we use 
So try to do a direct press white to try to get it nice and clean. And then uh, playing around with some skin contact stuff, we're doing roughly two weeks to 30 days, um, also natural fermentation. And then it'll get a uh, transfer to barrel and just age in barrel for probably two or three years before it's released. Um, for the reds, I'll do usually about two weeks um, or until they're fully done uh, with fermentation with primary. And then they'll be transferred into punch-in or larger like thousand liter casks. So the goal is to kind of try to grow this stillage program where you know, these walls are lined with large casks um, and just kind of be able to hold on to stuff as long as I can and um, go that direction. You mentioned whole cluster. What, what prompted that? Uh, I don't have a de-stummer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, I mean, grapes are, you know, the whole bunch is the representation of the grape. There's definitely varietals that suit it better and some that don't, but I think with enough time, things can come around and soften out. You know, those tannins can get soft. And um, so really the first few years wasn't an option. This year, um, I'll still probably just do whole cluster. It's just, I don't know. I don't know why it went that way, but <laughs> I guess it started with a financial reason and now it's kind of just the way things I'm going to try and see how it goes. You talked earlier about the, the wine list at the bakery. So tell me about how that sort of came about and what you've done with it so far. Yeah, we kind of started when we opened the bakery after about a year, we started pizza night and I loved cooking, you know, dinner and stuff. So and we had a big wood oven. So we thought wood fired pizza would be great. And, uh, you know, we started with a little list, probably 20 wines, and now it's grown into this I think 300 bottle list that um, people seem to love and it just kind of grew and grew and grew and I was lucky to have some access to some special wines and just bring those in and people have been really, really interested in them and you know, it's the Gorge has so many great producers, same with the Willamette Valley and this area, but you can get those in a lot of places. So I felt like I wanted to bring stuff in that wasn't so accessible that people didn't get to try every day. Um, so I kind of focused on the regions that I was interested in and that I knew. So that led me down the Italian and Slovenian path. And now it's been, you know, now it's just growing and the list is getting a little bit more, I guess, nuanced and specialized. But um, yeah, it just kind of evolved from there, you know, a little bit Nate kind of helps point me in the right direction and what what I should go try and people to know to be able to get access to fun wines and so yeah. It's a good like gatekeeper to have on your side. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in addition to kind of trying to showcase regions you're excited about and maybe you're less accessible, what else are you looking for in a wine for that kind of list that you want to showcase? Um, I, you know, I'm pretty classic. I like classic wines that are uh, made um, without too much added stuff. I'm, I'm not a big fan of funky, weird, you know, V8 wines. I do like, even though I have a pretty big orange list, I stick to the producers that make pretty clean, you know, skin macerated wines that aren't overly oxidized or overly V8. Um, so I am looking for producers that are, you know, either growing organically, trying to farm most of their grapes, um, if they're biodynamic, that's great, but not really, uh, you know, not a 
thing that needs to be checked off. Um, so I look for smaller producers that are, I think, doing something interesting with reasonably clean and classically, you know, classic wines that, you know, Barolo should taste like Barolo. Um, same with Barbaresco or, um, you know, if I get a Pinot from Northeastern Italy, I, you know, I want it to taste somewhat like the Pinots that I'm familiar with from Burgundy. And so I look for those kinds of producers, those bottles, um, ideally not mass produced and there's not much on my list that's, you know, from producers that are bigger than, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand cases. So, yeah. Sounds very big in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But there's, you know, we definitely have a couple local people on the list that I really enjoy, like NLMA and IU and um, some smaller guys now that are starting their own projects that are, you know, trying to farm their own grapes and um, do things what I think is correct. And I appreciate that. So I'll put them on the list. You talked about the, the property a little bit earlier, and obviously we're in, in your new cellar here. Tell me about it, its evolution so far and what, what comes next? What are you looking to do next here? Yeah, so um, now that the cellar is kind of done, we're getting a bunch of more um, large wood casks this year. Um, a container of amphora are actually supposed to arrive next week for that I ordered from Georgia. Um, so those will get buried in the ground down by the... Um, down by the press room or garage. Um, and we're hoping to focus on the farming. You know, when we have enough storage, then we can start, and production space, we can start kind of focusing on the vineyard, getting that nice and healthy, and hoping to have a little bit of a harvest from there this year, and then even bigger one next year. So that's kind of where our next step is really put some time in the vineyard mm -hmm. and try to get that healthy and growing good grapes. How, how big is the vineyard now? The vineyard's gonna be, right now it's planted about one and a half acres. By the end, it'll be about four acres. And you talked about kind of, you, you work with various farming practices. So with your own vineyard, how are you farming it? Um, right now it's been farmed organically um, and that's how it's gonna be farmed. I'm pretty minimal. I don't till, I don't, I barely mow. I mow just so I can work on the irrigation when it breaks. Um, Right now, it's kind of been, though, just a thing out of, I don't have enough time to be able to really focus on everything, but um, we're doing, we're not doing any, we didn't do any sulfur sprays this year, you know, just a little bit of oil. Um, we're doing some beneficial sprays for bio biology stuff, but um, it'll be farmed organically for sure. I'm not quite ready to dive into the biodynamic side of things. I don't, A, I don't understand it well enough, and B, I'm a little bit hesitant on some of the stuff I do understand. Um, but we do spray compost teas and that kind of stuff to help the soil. Um, and that's how I'm gonna try to farm it. You know, I tried planting it without irrigation and it only about 50% worked. So then we had to bring in irrigation two years ago and now we're you know, able to get the plants at least for the first two, three years up and running. And then hoping to dry farm it and go from there. And so you mentioned you don't have any releases out yet, so wine to be released next year? Wine will be released next year. We're hoping um, we're gonna release two versions of Godeo, one straight press, one macerated for about 25 days. Then we're gonna release probably a little bit of Nebbiolo and a little bit of Pinot. So we're planning to do kind of a big spring release, get the website up and finished, and just kind of release all four or five wines at once in the spring. Um, to try to 
just get it going and see how it goes from there, see how people, if they enjoy it or not, and yeah. And I probably should ask what the brand name is. It's Poberi Wines. Okay. Yeah. So I want to back up for a second and talk about 2020 a little bit and your kind of experience there as uh, owning a restaurant and also trying to get a vineyard going. Uh, what, uh, what were kind of the biggest challenges of the year for you and uh, what were the kind of the, the adjustments and decisions you had to make? Yeah, we, um, I guess in terms of the bakery, we shut it down for two months um, and we just did a, we kind of adapted and just Nina and I would go in and bake and we'd put everything outside and it was self-serve. So we'd do that three days a week. We'd just go in, put it on the patio, and people would come and pay with cash or Venmo. And that's it. And that lasted for about two months. And it worked out really well. We were selling out every day and people were super excited to still be able to get bread and pastries. Um, and then I think in, I can't remember, maybe August, we opened back up to just doing counter service um, outside the front door. So people would just order at the door. We still weren't doing coffee drinks and that kind of stuff, but a um, little bit more inside brought most of the staff back, picked up wholesale accounts again. Um, so we were very fortunate that it really, COVID didn't affect us too much. We were able to stay busy through all of it and the bakery you know, financially did all right. And we were just happy to open the doors back up and get all our staff back employed and get going. And then I think, we fully opened up, I think April of last year, I could be totally wrong, but I think April of last year, we totally opened up the inside again and now it's pretty much back to normal. For winery stuff, it was hard because 2020 was super smoky. We had a lot of smoke here. Um, so we got uh, fruit from Horse Heaven Hills Nebbiolo, which was actually not smoke affected at all, which we were super lucky with. And then we got Pinot from Atavis Vineyard right down the road, which was terrible. And now it's just sitting and punching and we're seeing if it's gonna ever come around. But um, again, it didn't help to do whole cluster <laughs> in 2020. And um, we did try to shorten the uh, maceration time a little bit, but it still, I think, was on skins for about a week or two. And it just, it's a smoke bomb, it's terrible. But we were lucky with, you know, with Godeo from Steven wasn't smoky and the Nebbiolo I got, that was primarily mostly what we made. I think we got four tons and it was very clean and really nice and coming around really well right now. So it wasn't too bad for us, but. So I know that there is a, fam a bit of a family history with wine for you too. I'm, I'm curious about if that's played a role in your wine journey so far. Um, a little bit, yeah, for sure. I was lucky enough to visit, you know, my uncle's Grovner, and I was lucky enough to visit there when I was pretty young to go see what he was doing. Um, and then got to go work harvest there in 19, and I still, you know, can call him up and ask for advice and things like that. So it definitely helps. Um, and I do think, you know, I am interested in what he's doing. I think the quality of his wines are tremendous. So I am, you know, I definitely kind of, push to go that direction and it's what interests me and I think if I can come anywhere near what he's doing it'll be a miracle but um, but yeah it's definitely influenced me in that region in that area and those grapes so yeah 
So with the with the uh, the gorge, I'm curious, uh, what are the how have the how have the wines out here evolved since you've sort of been aware of them, and, and what do you see happening next in this area? Um, I think the gorge is such a fascinating place because it's changed so much in such a short amount of time. Um, you know, you had a few big producers early on, but now it's you have a lot of small producers. And what's changed for me, at least in the last ten years, what I've noticed the most is the farming. The quality of farming has gone up tremendously, which I think is the most important part. Um, you know, you have people who have been viticulturists their whole lives and are moving here to try to get vineyards and you know, kind of resurrect them. I think this area is realizing that farming organically has value and it's important for our water drainages and all that. So that's what I'm really impressed with is how much, you know, how good the quality is getting around here. Um, just the people are very knowledgeable these days and coming in and, you know, turning vineyards around that were struggling and not doing well, but, you know, produce producing really, really good wines with now. Mm -hmm. So that's what excites me the most. I think these smaller producers, there's a lot of them, and um, they're just doing fascinating stuff for soil and for the health of the vines. And for, I, I know you're technically on the Washington side of the border, but obviously you're pretty plugged into Oregon wine. And I'm curious what your perspectives are on the state industry as a whole and, and changes you've, again, changes you've seen in kind of a future look. Yeah. You know, I love Willamette Valley wines and Pinots that are coming out of there and what Maggie at Enziquitera or John Paul at Cameron or um, a couple other producers down there are doing and it's it's fascinating. But honestly, I can't say much to how, how it's changed. I'm not really, I wasn't around, I haven't been around long enough to really know what the early wine scene was like in the Willamette Valley or even out here to really say much on that. Do you have sort of a hope for as, as you look ahead? Yeah, um, you know, I hope I can grow this winery to, you know, thousand or fifteen hundred cases a year and kind of make this my full time job. And I hope that people enjoy the wines and that see the effort that goes into them. Um, and I'm grateful to live in the gorge and that we're lucky with to you know be surrounded with vineyards and fruit and orchards and. And it's just, I think it's an area that's really up and coming and exciting things are happening for the wine world, I think, out here. Uh, what about for the bakery, as you look ahead? Yeah, the bakery's, um, bakery's been doing great and it's, you know, we're lucky enough to have a really good staff. Um, our manager does a great job kind of running it for us now and, you know, we're still there every day and working hard, but it's definitely we're able to step away a little bit more and focus on some other projects. Mm -hmm. um, so we definitely keep, you know, hope the bakery keeps going as it is and um, producing great bread and pastries and things like that. So, and then we're working on a new project right now, actually, that we just started. We're opening a wine shop and bar in White Salmon. Um, and we got closed on the building about a month ago, and now we're hoping to open that in December or so. So it'll be a kind of fun, you know, give me access to more wines to get to try and, <laughs> and go down that road. A good enough reason to there, right there. Like yeah. Uh, so congratulations on that, Thanks. by the way. Uh, uh, as you, what, what's the, what is sort of the general kind of plan for it, and what, what are you hoping to showcase? Yeah, we actually partnered with Bethany from the Color Collector. Um, 
And we're gonna do, you know, we white salmon needs a little wine bar. We have one tasting room and they do a great job, but I think there's room for growth. And so we're gonna do a uh, by the glass program, probably 20 to 25 glasses and try to do about seven to 800 bottles of wine for retail. Um, it has a little patio, so there'll be little snacks and things like that. So kind of a mix between a full on wine shop and a full on wine bar. Oh, yeah. So you're not bored, is what you're saying? Not bored. <laughs> no, a lot going on, but it's good. Excellent. That's all the questions that I have for you. Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover? Uh, no, I think that's, yeah. Excellent. I think that's good. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for yeah, your time and hospitality and your brand new cellar <laughs> here. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you. Thanks for coming out. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.